1: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. My co hosts are here with me now Aaron Lammer, Max Linsky. Hey, Evan.
0: Hey, guys. Evan, who is uh, on the program
1: this week? This week, I spoke to Robert Samuels and Tolu Olorunipa. They are both reporters at the Washington Post. Robert is a national enterprise reporter, Tolu is the White House bureau chief currently. But they're also together the authors of His Name is George Floyd, which, among other accolades, was recently on the long list for the National Book Award. And the book is basically the deeply reported story of George Floyd's life, family history, all of the institutions he encountered in his life, and also what happened after his death. And I found it to be extremely illuminating And almost like gripping in a way I didn't quite expect because you think you know the story. And I wanted to know how they went about reporting and writing this thing. And it was a pleasure to talk to them both about it.
2: Our show is produced in partnership
0: with the fine people at Vox, thanks to them. Now here's Evan with Robert Samuels and Tolu Olurinipa.
1: Robert Tolu, welcome to the Longform Podcast. It is an honor to have you both on at the same time. And I want to talk a lot about the book, obviously, but I want to start with what were you reporting on when the George Floyd murder happened?
3: I can start. Um, this is Tolu. I was a White House reporter covering the presidency of Donald Trump and all the turbulence surrounding that presidency, especially in 2020, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, there was a big presidential campaign going on. There were a lot of issues that were facing the country. And it seemed like we were in a moment of turmoil, a really big inflection point in the country's history, even before George Floyd was murdered. And then obviously we saw the protests. And so I was covering how the White House was responding, seeing how President Trump was responding, seeing how, in many cases, he was inflaming some of the tensions that were exposed. And that was really the vantage point that I was viewing a lot of this from before I took a little bit of a break to join in on this project that led to the book, His Name is George Floyd.
2: Yeah. And I had been an enterprise reporter, and early in the pandemic, it was very difficult to figure out what to do because you couldn't go anywhere. And one of the first stories I did was looking at uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The first uh, seven people to die in Wisconsin were all African-American. And what I saw really haunted me because covering coronavirus on the ground, I remember getting a list of people who had uh, been infected or had been killed and they were all living within blocks of one another. And I had come in thinking of one thing and the people kept on telling me, no, it's not simply because we don't believe in social distancing. It's because we can't social distance because we have to go to work. We live in these houses with our parents and our grandparents. And it really sort of reoriented my focus to thinking about systemic challenges. And when George Floyd died, I was still thinking about those things because they had seemed interrelated. And the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to understand why people were acting so strangely. And by strangely, I mean, as a Black person, I had a lot of friends who were asking me if I was okay. I had some of pe- some people from my church were sending me money and it was very weird. And the first thing I did was I... Went to tulsa oklahoma and i started interviewing white women who had seen the footage and felt they needed to change their lives and i realized that there was something that was important that was happening that we were really at a moment where if we talked about these bigger issues people would listen to them it was a very unique and precious moment
1: and i know there was a team at the post who were covering you know all aspects of what happened But I'm interested in how it kind of went from that team approach to you guys ending up, partnering up on the book. Like what caused the two of you to feel like, you know what, we can do this together. Like we can keep this story going even after the initial post-reporting.
2: Yeah, well, after we had done the series, I think all of us were surprised the original series uh, there were six stories done by seven reporters that looked at different institutions that George Floyd had intersected with education, his family history, healthcare, housing, uh, criminal justice, and uh, the prison system. And I think we were all really struck by just how resonant some of the theories of how systemic racism operates or functioning in the life of George Floyd. Also, I think for those of us who had the privilege of spending time with people who had known George Floyd, his friends and his family, were just really staggered by his heart, his humanity. And so much of that had been flattened over time. You know, he had become this hashtag, this symbol. And I know that I just felt like if we had an opportunity, we could do so much more, not just by showing who he is, but there were so many things that we couldn't cover in the series because of the nature that it was structured, that would be able to help us show readers more about society and who we are as a society. So We often say, by showing who he was, we get to see who we are.
1: That that really connects up with a, a question I had as I got further into the book, which was, it's essentially a biography. And normally, a biography is about an extraordinary person. And the further I got into the book, the more I, it seemed like he was an extraordinary person in a way that I had not been aware of. To what extent were you approaching it as like, we are writing the story of an extraordinary person, or we are writing the story of an ordinary person, you know, a black man to whom this happened but it could have happened to anyone else
3: yeah i, I think it's a little bit of both uh and in, in the way robert put it that you know talking about george floyd's life ex- exploring his life allowed us to c- explore the world the america that he grew up in and we wanted to really reflect that in the subtitle one man's life and the struggle for racial justice so there are two things that we were trying to do in the book one tell the story of a human being a person who is ordinary in some ways, extraordinary in other ways, but also his extraordinary American experience, which is so different than the American experience that most people know about or get to see or read about, because, you know, looking at George Floyd's family history, looking at the poverty that he grew up in, looking at the schools that he attended, which were segregated, looking at the opportunities that were denied to him and the struggles he had in the criminal justice system, it's an extraordinary American experience in part because it's so outside of the norm of what we think of when we think of the American dream. And we wanted to be able to show how that process plays out in the life of one person, how those dreams are often deferred and diminished and derailed because of the color of someone's skin, because of the circumstances that they grow up in, because of poverty, uh, because of government systems and policies that are put in place and uh, held in place over many decades and many generations. And so we wanted to be able to showcase that, that kind of extraordinary American experience is ordinary for so many people there's so many other people like george floyd who just don't get written about or don't we don't often see them in the media and they're experiencing the same struggles that he experienced they don't all die on camera as george floyd did uh, and they're not all murdered under the knee of a police officer but they still struggle under the oppressive systems that george floyd suffered under for many years
1: and so how do you approach it i mean particularly when it comes to robert you mentioned the you know the family and the people who knew him like How does it feel to approach people who are in the middle of grief, but also in the middle of an intense national, even international spotlight? Walk us through, like, what do you do? What do you say? How do you decide how aggressive to be with them and and get them to, to trust you?
2: One of the important things at the beginnings of these conversations that we had is we had to approach it earnestly and really speak about the mission that we had in terms of deciding to go on this journey. And that mission was one we'd hope they join us with. I remember having a conversation with Ben Crump, who is the lawyer representing the family, who said to me, at first, no, I'm not going to give you this chance because I know what a white jury can do if they learn about... The fullness of the Black experience. And I said to him essentially, you know, if we believe that, then why do what you do? Why do what we do? We have to believe that we can do something to end systemic racism. And then the other thing that I think was important was we explained that we were doing it to help explain something that went beyond George Floyd, that people could see, open their eyes so there wouldn't be another situation like the one George Floyd had encountered. And the third thing that we talked about, and I think it was really important, is that we had said we wanted the world to see George Floyd like they saw George Floyd. Because people who knew him, were able to look at all the things he had done, good and bad, and still come out with this feeling of intense love for him. And it's not because they were strange people. It's because they were living, breathing people. And we made a commitment that that's what we wanted to do. We wanted the world to see George Floyd like they saw George Floyd. And if they could join with us in that, then we'd be good because we were going to do it with incredible scrutiny, with incredible detail. But it wasn't to make him out to be someone who he wasn't. It was really to be sure that readers understood who he was.
1: You went almost like concentric circles out from his family and friends and then teachers talking about him. You've got people who were in rehab with him in Minneapolis. Like how far did you go before you stopped encountering other reporters like were you encountering people who are sort of like oh no one's ever knocked on my door to ask me about this like no one found me
3: one of the things we had was a little bit of luxury of time and that we told people from the very beginning that we were not just going to be parachute reporters that come in right in the moment and then when everyone else leaves when the cameras turn off we're leaving as well so Some of the people we spoke to had seen reporters. They had seen the initial rush that happened right after May 25th, 2020. Uh, And they'd seen those reporters come and go and leave town. And we stuck around. We kept continuing to call. And there were some people who who said, no, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm grieving. I want to honor the life of my friend. And I don't want to be a part of this maelstrom of media interest, which I know is going to dissipate once the news cycle moves on to something else. So that was something that we were able to use in order to let people know that we were serious, that we were not going to just forget about this story. We wanted to tell it in a full way and wanted to take the time to do it right. That's one of the things we said over and over again to people who were skeptical and maybe some people who hadn't responded to other reporters. And I think that persistence, that ability to stick with the story allowed some people who were on the radar of other reporters who just decided not to engage, uh, some family members, some people who were further out from, from George Floyd who had interesting stories and anecdotes and were touched by him to open up to us and to tell us about what their experience with him was. They felt like they were participating in the project. They felt like they were part of our broader mission, not just to expose and let people know what his life was about, but also to explore some of these institutions and this broader subject of systemic racism and show how it implemented in one person's life.
2: And the other thing that I think was really important about this, when we did the reporting, we actually started on the outside of the circle. Uh, We started speaking with really smart people and public officials and things like that who really wanted to talk about this. And those people were able to facilitate people who were closer and had more intimate relationships with him, partially because I think people thought, well, If this guy's going to do it, I need to do it, honestly. But I think there was another thing that was distinct in our approach. You know, one of George Floyd's roommates, Elvin Monaga, the first time I talked to him, he said, you asked me questions no one had ever asked. And I said, well, what would they ask you? And he said, well, the first question they usually ask is, where were you when you saw the video of George Floyd dying? And I mean, I think that makes sense in a news context. I don't mean to look down upon that sort of instinct, but I think it's also important to recognize that that instinct is based on the reporter's personal experience with George Floyd. It's not an organic way to ask someone about someone they knew. And so that question was a question that I never asked. And if I did, it came up at the very end. You know, when people trusted us, it was something they wanted to talk about. But that was ultimately not what we were looking for.
0: Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs. Threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like, very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk free. Now, normally you get a two week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
1: Tolu, you wrote something earlier this year about the fact that you went almost a full year without watching the video while doing the reporting, and it made me just wonder how it felt to setting aside the video spend so much time with people who were grappling with this death, but then you also have to kind of sit with it with them in their grief. How do you do that kind of reporting where you're you're trying to obviously still extract anecdotes from them and information and the things that you need to make the book work, but also they're in this very vulnerable place and how do you balance those things?
3: Yeah, going back to the whole issue of luxury of time, just being able to sit with people and say, we're going to be here. We're going to we're going to spend time with you we're going to go to places where you spent time with george floyd we're going to try to get you a little bit out of your head and let you just process your emotions process your feelings you know we would literally go to parts of the town that george floyd went to and frequented and spend time there with his friends with his family members and just allow them to reminisce and some of that i think was cathartic for them that they were able to not just think about his death, not just think about those heinous minutes that we saw on the video, but think about George Floyd as someone who lived, who lived a full life, who lived a complicated life, who was not afraid of acknowledging that he had mistakes and someone who was funny and gregarious and who had a lot of anecdotes that we try to bring to life in the book. And those stories just started spilling out in part because we said, you know, we're going to stay here with you. We're going to You know, answer your questions if you have questions about what we're doing as as journalists, about what we found by talking to other people. We talked to people who knew him as an adolescent. We talked to people who went to high school with him, who played on football teams with him, uh, who knew him in college and beyond, people who served time with him. And, you know, some of these people didn't know each other. So we would just sit, sit with them and talk about what we had been hearing, you know, anecdotes and stories we had heard from different stages of his life. And they'd say, oh, that reminded me of when he did XYZ. And I think for us, it was also somewhat cathartic to be able to spend time with people who are grieving but who remembered the positive experiences they had with someone who had departed i think that was part of what made it easier and made it different than you know your typical parachute journalism after a tragedy where you're trying to just extract information just to make your deadline and say you know this ex person who died was known as a loving father blah 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 which is important and which is you know that's part of journalism as well getting the most accurate information you can get in the moment while the news cycle is still um, hot. But for us, uh, we wanted to take a different approach and also explore the life of someone in a different way.
1: You had access to what seemed like his own writings and some of them intimate, almost diary-like. Can you describe how that came about, like when you find out about that and then when you're comfortable sort of asking someone, can I have that or they volunteer it? Like, how did you get
2: those? George Floyd was a writer. And he had, throughout the course of his life, written things down about his hopes and dreams and people who knew him and loved him had them. He shared it with them. Sometimes he just scribbled things on sheets of paper and he just left them there. And so George Floyd wasn't here to help us with this project. And because of that, we took great strides not to pretend to know what he was thinking or things that were going on in his head. That would have been irresponsible. But so often, people would share notes or diaries with us that aligned with these moments that we were thinking about. During the course of it, we had learned that While he had a period of sobriety, it was clean and everything was going well for him. He got this really wonderful home and a roommate that he had really liked. And that roommate eventually overdosed and George Floyd had found him. It sent him on a spiral back to drug dependency. And you could imagine what that could do to a person. But there was George Floyd in his writing saying, I had to see it to believe it. I saw it, I still couldn't believe it. My close friend was in addiction and smiled at me to my face. And you began to realize that these things that people were telling you about him were not just the gleeful whitewashing of a troubled person, that they were speaking earnestly in terms of talking about him being a soulful and thoughtful man was thinking about the things of his past. They're incredibly clarifying in that sense.
1: That's a very tough moment in the book. I feel like that was, for me, that was a testament to how lost in the story I got that I sort of, I knew how, I know how the story ends, but in that moment, I just thought just to see him dragged back down was, it was like a very painful part of the story. And did you experience that as you were reporting and finding out about his life this feeling that like you'll never get to meet this person but you're like that close
3: For sure, for sure. Uh when we were learning more about his life, the arc of his life, there are moments of hope uh, in his life and his family where things could have gone positively in a completely different direction and then we see in many cases, institutional racism sort of rear its head and drag him down. Sometimes it's bad fortune, sometimes it's policy, and it's often just a mix of negative things that even as he strived, even as his family worked very hard and strived, you know, they were not given the opportunity. And a lot of times they had the opportunity that they earned stripped away from them. You know, it just sort of so happened that as we compiled the book, we saw those instances of opportunity, those instances of you know, glimmers of hope, you know, being shut, closed over and over again. And then it just became sort of one of the themes of the book. Um, you know, George Floyd trying and striving and picking himself up and then getting knocked down again, um, moving, leaving Houston to go to Minneapolis to try to get in rehab and then finding that Minneapolis was not the panacea that, that he thought it would be. And so that just really ended up being something that was was gutting as we wrote the book, because you know we knew how it ended, obviously, but just sort of seeing the process unfold, seeing how many different times where it seemed like he was going to be able to, to make a path out and having you know, those opportunities shut down on him and having this system really operating in a way that was discriminatory against him, whether it was the criminal justice system, being able to investigate some of the um arrests that he had and some of the some of the parts of his criminal record that if you just look at the record you say oh obviously this was a habitual criminal when you dig deeper when you talk to people who are involved you find out that a lot of times he was a victim of police harassment not just on his final day on, on earth but over the course of his life and so some of those episodes were really affecting in terms of realizing that these things leave traumatic marks on, on someone, and it makes it that much harder to succeed, that much harder to believe in the American dream. But George Floyd's spirit continued to sort of shine through uh, in, in our research as we realized how much was stacked against him, how many times he was knocked down. And yet, in his writings, and what he told his, his friends, in his own actions, you saw him continually trying to pick himself up, trying to restart you know, reshaping his dreams and saying, you know, I'm going to go for something a little bit less ambitious, but just still try to have a little slice of the American dream. And so writing and researching and finding out about how those ups and downs took place, even though we knew the end of the story was still difficult, still still trying to to, to do. Um, but it's something we wanted the reader to get as well.
1: I'm going to ask both of you this, but I'll put Robert on the spot first. You both uh, were experienced reporters when you started this project. Robert, you at the Washington Post and then before at the Miami Herald, Washington Post and then Bloomberg News before that, did you feel there were stories in your past that you had done that prepared you to do this specific story? Were there sort of experiences that you called on to say, oh, this is like a deeper version of what I was doing before? Or did this feel sort of like uniquely challenging in a way that you had not experienced before?
2: (laughs) Writing at book length, even for an enterprise reporter, is an entirely different kettle of fish, particularly at the pace in which we're writing. But yes, I mean, every reporting experience that I have sort of builds upon the other uh, on the others. But I'd point out a few things. I mean, I worked as a night cops reporter at the Miami Herald, and I was familiar and frustrated sometimes with what I was asked to do, which was go to a person's house when something terrible had happened suddenly and try to glean information. And I knew how parasitic it could feel and what a disservice it could do. And at some point I learned that I needed to go back the next day. And like that experience of saying, all right, I'm sorry I came yesterday, but like we have more time now. That was incredibly helpful. The other thing was, like I said, my experiences covering coronavirus in Black communities that were struggling to get resources. And I saw it happening in real time. I remember I was with a public health official in Gary, Indiana, who just wanted a mobile van from the state of Indiana in his town so people could get tested and couldn't do it. By the time George Floyd died, that same frustration that was bubbling up in so many communities and Black neighborhoods across the country had begun to bubble up with me. The third thing I'd say is that my experience writing profiles of presidential candidates also really helped. And I know that might sound a little bit weird, but in the stories that I've done about people who wanted to ascend to the highest office in the universe, it became clearer and clearer to me that you needed to see them as real people and that they all had foibles and hopes and dreams and small things that could make a really big difference. There was one story I did where I watched 63 hours of tape of Barka Rubio at city council meetings and stories about Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden about asked them who their black friend was and I talked to them about what they learned about race and like in doing those things I learned that in making the asks to people you have to really make sure that they had a stake in it and they understood what would be lost if this story wasn't told in the way I was thinking about telling it and so I had learned ways to help people join me in journalistic missions as opposed to just feeling like I could go and ask whatever I want because I am a reporter and thus I have a right to do that. No, that's not the approach that seemed to work. And I think it's an approach that people here appreciated, including the president of the United States who participated in the book.
3: Yeah, it's funny that Robert and I both early in our careers worked at the Miami Herald, um, And a lot of the lessons I I picked up working in in local news uh, were were very valuable here. Uh, And, you know, going to some of the communities where George Floyd grew up, communities that sometimes don't get fair media coverage, knowing sort of the skepticism that can be in those communities, knowing sort of the the cadences and the the ability to to go in and and level with people about what I was trying to do was something that I I had to do in local news. And especially when I began covering politics also in Florida, connecting policy to the lives of everyday people. That's one of the things we tried to do in the book and sort of draw that line between a law that gets passed or a policy that gets implemented from the federal government or state government to a local community, to a housing project, to a local family that's trying to make ends meet. A lot of times, you know, politicians work to make these things kind of obtuse and make them hard to understand. And a lot of times the people who are impacted don't fully get to know sort of what is leading to the challenges and problems they have in a specific community or housing project. And so that was very valuable in doing this project because we tried to do that just on a higher level with a much larger pool of policies over the course of several decades, actually over the course of several generations, and showcasing how that impacted one person's life, one family in America. And so that connectiveness was very key to us in writing this project, you know, covering the previous racial justice protests from the Trayvon Martin case in Florida to Ferguson, seeing how some of those things played out, seeing some of the players, seeing how you know community responded to these acts of violence it was very helpful in understanding how this case was different also understanding some of the similarities uh, and some of the cadences of the movement that that erupted after George Floyd's death
1: so I want to talk for a second about just systems I'm fascinated with reporting systems and organizational systems you got four hundred plus interviews I think was what it, what it said you've got experts family members you had archival you've got a whole section about george floyd's great-grandfather and his life and how are you organizing this between the two of you like what is the setup look like by which all of this is like captured and sorted
3: well one thing i'd say is we spent a lot of time editing one another we had editors as well but we wanted this to be a seamless project so we edited one another we shared our chapters we shared our ideas Uh, We spent a lot of time on the phone sort of just talking through ideas and talking through these chapters, talking through the interviews that we did, sharing all of our interviews with one another, uh, the transcripts so that we know uh, sort of who we're talking to and what they were saying. One thing that sort of helped was we had a little bit of a geographical breakdown as well. I spent a lot of time in Houston where George Floyd grew up, and that just sort of organically lended itself to me, doing a lot of the reporting about his early years, about his family. Robert spent a lot of time in Minneapolis. He covered the trial live. He covered a lot of things happening in the movement. He got a lot of the exclusive reporting around George Floyd's final day. And so it made sense for him to kind of take the lead on some of the Minneapolis chapters and some of the things that were set there. But we had a lot of cross purpose in terms of making sure that we were both reading each other's stuff, writing for each other, editing one another helping each other out on chapters. And that made things somewhat more organic. So we wanted it to be a seamless project. We wanted it to be in a singular voice. And so even though we took the lead on specific chapters, each chapter bears the marks of both of our reporting and both of our writing. Uh, But that was sort of how we took on such a big project together and tried to make it seem as seamless as possible. Yeah. And I'm a post-it note guy. I know there is a
2: lines of thought about writers who need to outline everything and writers who do a paragraph and the paragraph has to be perfect until the next paragraph. I'm a nutcase and I need everything outlined. Um, And so, you know, we had outlined the entire book. I'm not sure if that was Tolu's preference, but I don't think we could have gone on if he hadn't done it that way. And, as the chapters became more granular, I realized that I couldn't use the yellow stickies that I typically do because they're covering the apartment. And I had to go get a whiteboard and <laughs> like beautiful-minded. What writers say is true is you confront the white page when it's all in your head and you're like, What am I gonna do? And sort of like having that, you know, continue outline, and then I had a little ticker of The chapters that were done, we didn't, we did not write the book sequentially. Um, Was really helpful in feeling like okay, we're making progress, and this is doable. I mean, we wrote something like 150,000 words in about six months, so like it was an intense process.
1: When you sat down to write, was there a voice that you kind of collectively decided, like this is the voice we're writing in, and? it's not a Washington Post voice, it's this voice? Or did you kind of do it through an iterative process? Like, how did you sort of land on the tone in which the book is written?
2: I think the reporting yielded the tone more than the actual, like, I mean, I I would never consider my writing sort of the Washington Post voice. I think Tolu has a different voice than I do. But I think the skills were... Actually, pretty complementary in terms of the way we think about stories. I think Tolu thinks about things with a lot more sweep than I do. A lot, you know, like a lot more epic. I'm more granular. You know, like I sort of like want the quotidian nature of life to be present. And I think we realized that when those things were married, they weren't oppositional. Like when, when you marry them together you get something that feels incredibly robust. Um, So like when we hear people talk about how, how dense the book feels in terms of the research or how intense it is, you know, a part of that has to do with the reporting, but I also think it's the marrying of
3: two styles. Yeah, totally. I agree totally. And you need those two styles for this kind of project because we did have the sweep of history in it, but we also had George Floyd as a human being going through daily life in the year 2020 and the year 2017 and these various years that are key to his life. And we wanted to be able to kind of drill down on what was happening in his life, as well as how history impacted what was happening in his life. So that's why it was one person's life, but also this broader struggle and this broader look at racial injustice. And so that's why it was important for us to marry up those two different Sort of approaches and make sure that we are capturing them both. You know, sometimes we took a little aside to step away from George Floyd and his life to talk about the institution that had shaped it, to talk about how the healthcare system allows for a number of different injustices against Black bodies, and how you know the housing system in Houston was created in a certain way. You know, turning the the camera back, you know, several decades back into the time of segregation and how redlining impacted. George Floyd's uh, coming of age several decades later. So it was important for us to be able to try to carry those two things at the same time while also not making the book seem like a history book or seem like something that it wasn't. It's a biography, but it's also a look at uh, an America that many people don't get to see. And so it was important for us to be able to balance those two things. That was one of the hardest things about writing this book was figuring out that balance figuring out when to take a pause from george Floyd's life when to you know delve deeper into some of the historical things we could have gone much deeper into some of the institutions but that may have taken away from you know the, the importance of knowing about the main character in the book so finding that balance was difficult but the fact that uh, robert and i kind of came at this project from those different perspectives helped to to make sure that the, the balance was right
1: you know, I mentioned earlier, totally. Not, you know, you saying you didn't watch the video, the George Floyd murder, for a year. But then you, the second half of that was that then you had to watch it like dozens, if not hundreds, of times. And what kind of impact did it have on you guys to sit in this story and to see the video over and over? Like, how did it change your outlook, or did it, or did it feel? you know, like this is reporting and this is what we do. And it doesn't necessarily change us. We knew all this going in, you know, sort of thing.
3: Well, it, we definitely did not know how much this would impact us personally going into it. I would, I would say it was trying, it was traumatizing to to learn about some of the things that we learned about to sit with some of the in-depth examples of systemic racism in the way that we did. Obviously, we're two Black men who have experienced some of these things, but to to, to see it through the lens of George Floyd's Life um, just brought it home even more. I would say something that Robert has said often is that one of the redeeming qualities of this project was getting to know George Floyd himself. He was someone who went around telling everyone "I love you," you know, strangers and children and you know, lovers and you know, other men that he was friend friendly with, just to put a little bit of love in their life, a little bit of love in their world, knowing that you know they grew up in harsh conditions, and so. Things like that made it easier, even as we saw how loveless the world was towards him, how loveless some of these institutions were towards him. Understanding how he responded to some of that and how he continued to strive, that helped to, to make it a little easier to sit with some of the, these things. If we were writing about someone who didn't have that kind of spirit, it would just be even more depressing. But the fact that he was a striver and the fact that he was a survivor, the fact that he continued to believe in the American spirit and the American dream helped uh, to make it easier for us to deal with some of these issues as we dealt with them in, in writing about his life. And, you know,
2: I'd add that during the course of this reporting, and I think it's always important for people to know, we did not think the story would end when George Floyd died. It continues after him. And that the people who we're dealing with did not know when we would stop reporting. We did not know when we would stop reporting. And there would be days where I would just be in someone's room and I'd watch them watching the sky, doing nothing, trembling to themselves, recounting some of these situations, feeling incredible amounts of guilt, feeling incredible amounts of uncertainty about the future. And living with that was considerably harder than watching the video because you knew what the impetus was, but you also were developing an appreciation on what was law. And that was that was really tough.
1: So how do you both turn back to your jobs after that, after living with that story? And obviously, you know, of course the book's out and it has its own life and You know, Tolu, you're the chief White House correspondent now, and Robert, you're back at the Post doing stories. So, like, how do you take that and how does it change, you know, the reporting that you're doing now?
3: For me, it definitely makes me want to approach any political story through the lens of accountability, that we need to keep the government accountable for some of these things and show that the policies that are coming through Washington and through state capitals and through local communities have real impact on people's lives. It's going to have an impact on potentially the next George Floyd, the next little boy that's growing up and who needs a little bit of grace, a little bit of a safety net, maybe a little bit of a help, and at the very least, not having you know discrimination and you know, police violence left to wreak havoc on their futures. And so, I think it's incumbent upon reporters to not just cover the horse race, not just cover the winners and losers that we can see who are in suits, but the people who are impacted by these policies way down down the line, it's made me ha- take a different lens through which I'm seeing some of the political battles that we face and making sure that I can do the kind of reporting that showcases the people who are impacted, not just the, the powerful policymakers who are impacting others. To flip the script a little bit is one of the goals I have in, in going back to daily reporting.
2: Yeah, and this project, it reminded me of a few kind of core journalistic principles, first one being the easiest answer is not often the right answer, or the best answer is not often the first answer. It's important to continue to deep. And I think it's also important to really think about when you're entering into the life of a person in a situation uh, that's intense, where there's been a lot of scrutiny you have something to prove to them and you have an obligation to approach them with something that feels distinct and different. Otherwise you're just a part of the pack. And if you're a part of the pack, I'm not sure how much you're doing to actually improve the lived lives of a being. And I think about that a lot now when I, go and I ask people for interviews or to sit with them for a long time I want to make sure they know that speaking with me will be a distinct experience and that we're going to produce something unique out of it
1: well thank you both for coming on the show it's been great I really
2: appreciate it no problem thank you for having us Evan.
1: that's it for this week's show Thanks to Robert and Tolu for taking the time. Their book is called His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Go pick it up. Our editor this week is Jackie Sajiko. Susan Peterson handled the show notes. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.